Welcome to Medication Talk, the official podcast of TRC Healthcare, home of Pharmacist's Letter, Prescriber's Letter, RX Advanced, and the most trusted clinical resources. On today's episode, we'll listen in as our expert panel reviews new RSV vaccine recommendations in adults aged 60 years and older. Our guests today are Dr. Lauren B. Angelo from the Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science and Dr. Kelly R. Good from the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy. You'll also hear practical advice from panelists on TRC's editorial advisory board. Dr. Reed Blackwelder from East Tennessee State University, Dr. Stephen Carrick from the USC School of Medicine, Greenville, Dr. Andrea Darby-Stewart from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and Dr. Anthony Donato from the Tower Health System. This podcast is an extract from TRC's Emerging Recommendations panel webinar. Each month, experts and frontline providers discuss current medication therapy topics and practical recommendations to include in TRC's letter articles. The full webinar originally aired on August 21st, 2023. And now, the CE information. This podcast offers continuing education credit for pharmacists, physicians, and nurses. Please log into your pharmacist letter or prescriber's letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. For the purposes of disclosure, Dr. Angelo reports relevant financial relationships by receiving an honorarium from Moderna and participating on the Speaker's Bureau for Pfizer. Dr. Good reports relevant financial relationships by receiving an honorarium from Merck, Pfizer, Sanofi, and Valneva. The other speakers you'll hear have nothing to disclose. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Now, let's join TRC editor, Dr. Jennifer Neiman, and start our discussion. We're talking about this topic now because you're going to get questions about the first vaccines to prevent respiratory syncytial virus in older adults. And I do want to say offhand here, just to start the discussion, that the FDA did also today approve them just one of them, the Abrisvo brand for use in pregnancy. But tonight's discussion is going to just focus on their use in older adults. And so Kelly, would you mind getting us started off with some background about what is RSV and its typical symptoms and what is the usual RSV season? Yes, certainly. So RSV is an RNA virus. And there is one serotype of RSV, but it is classified into two strains, A and B. And it's spread through respiratory droplet, just like some of our other respiratory viruses. Usually the clinical presentation is similar to other respiratory. So you have rhinorrhea, you might have nasal congestion, cough, sneezing, but you can lead to a lower respiratory illness, bronchiolitis, which can cause significant morbidity and mortality, especially in infants and older adults. The usual season is October to May, kind of peaking in that December, February timeframe. But as Lauren mentioned a little while ago, our sort of viruses and respiratory has has changed with COVID-19, right, with masking. So in the seasonal pattern is not the same. We had little to no activity in 2020-21. And then in our 2021-22 and 2022-23, we saw a much earlier RSV season peaking much, much earlier than that sort of December, February. So that's why this year, when we look at starting to vaccinate with RSV, we're starting as as the vaccine becomes available because we're we're just not sure what that pattern is going to look and continuing to vaccinate through the RSV season because we're not sure what that pattern is going to look like. 
Okay, yes, thank you for that clarification. That's, And I'm going to actually get back to some of the dosing in a little bit because that is a question I think is still a little bit unclear. And one question I also had was, so I think a lot of patients are going to be a little wary of possibly getting the recommendation for three vaccines this year. So one of the questions I anticipate they might ask is, if most patients have mild symptoms, why do we have RSV vaccines coming out? And who are they going to be, you know, most likely to benefit? Yeah, so even though you can have mild symptoms, it can cause significant morbidity mortality that that's very sort of in line with influenza virus. So, you know, 2 million symptomatic illnesses per year, 100, over 170,000 hospitalizations and 14,000 deaths per year. And so when you look at that data in that very old population, which is where we see recommendations for the vaccine, and then the infants where we're, we're getting some movement in that infant space and protection for infants, or where we can have serious disease and, and, and mortality. So that's why it's important. And it's sort of this, this triple pandemic um, with the RSV, influenza, and COVID all sort of converging. And so you, you don't really want to to get all three. You don't want to get and have that. So I think that it, it's still important, especially in patients who might be at higher risk to, to make sure that they're vaccinated. So you said something very interesting, Kelly, when you mentioned you kind of made a connection with the numbers of flu. If I were to add wording in there that this morbidity and mortality data is similar to many flu seasons, would you consider that accurate? Because I think that would be, that would probably resonate with a lot of patients if we were to describe that to them. Yeah, I mean, when you think about flu, I mean, but our flu seasons are, are always different, right? We can have a, a, a low of, you know, 3,000 deaths up to 43,000 deaths per year. So, but it is, you know, pretty similar in line um, and crosses over what we might see in a normal normal influenza vaccine season. Okay, that's really, that's, that's good to know. And, you know, Andy, I actually have a question for you. When you've seen patients hospitalized with RSV, can you comment on what the usual clinical course of these patients is and, and are they hard to treat? You, you know, for me, they, they look a whole lot like the flu. They're setting off patients that have underlying lung disease, and they, they look all the world like those patients. So I can't tell you, I could even clinically distinguish them from those types of conditions. The sicker they are, the, the harder the time they have with it. Okay. And which patients have you seen that are at higher risk of having severe infections from RSV in general? The underlying bad cardiopulmonary disease, more the pulmonary than the cardiac, is what I've seen. Now, for the record, I don't take care of any kids, and I'm sure my family practice colleagues see this much more than I do from that. But for, for old people, it's it's almost the same people that get flu, that get sick. Okay. And that is helpful, too, to kind of put that parallel out there. Okay. So, Kelly, I kind of want to move on about the new vaccines themselves. And so, what are the new options? And then what what patients are they approved for? Yeah, so we have two two options. One um, is an adjuvant vaccine, and one is sort of two strains, and it's a Ribzio and Orexi. And so they were FDA approved for adults 60 years and older. And ACIP, and they're both single doses, 0.5 mLs, one dose. And they were approved by ACIP for individuals 60 years and over under shared clinical decision-making. 
the patients that we just discussed that have that are at higher risk with those chronic morbidities, diabetes, COPD, people in long-term care facilities are very old individuals or people who would sort of fall under that shared clinical decision-making. And it's important to understand that pharmacists are, are healthcare providers that can help patients with that shared clinical decision-making. Okay, yes. And I think that's a really good point because I think a lot of this is when you have patients coming in and having three possible vaccines recommended, how can we help them decide this? And so one of the questions I also anticipate coming from a lot of practitioners in general and that I've gotten throughout writing this article, and this can be either for Kelly or Lauren, whichever you wants to jump in, but do you have a preference one over the other vaccine? And if so, you know, is what, what drives that preference if there is one? So I personally don't have a preference. They have very similar efficacy and very similar adverse effect profiles. When you look at the efficacy piece, you want to think about the fact that, you know, some of the trials were underpowered for some of our oldest adults, so those 75 and over, and they were really underpowered to show efficacy against our RSV hospitalization. But they both have very similar efficacy, very similar second season profiles. So they studied into the second season with both vaccines and very similar um, safety profiles with the vaccine. So if you're going to stock a vaccine, one of them, I would choose one, keep one versus having two. And then you won't have the errors that could potentially happen because they are done a little bit, um, reconstitute a little bit differently and done differently, which could confuse people if you have the two vaccines. Okay. And so, Lauren, I wondered if you could also then help us comment a little bit. I think it was briefly mentioned just a moment ago, but how effective are these vaccines? And sure. well, in which patients were they studied? So I do want to comment that this is really early on, um, looking at, at these vaccines and, and the data and some of the trials. And I think we're going to get more information as the seasons unfold over the next couple couple of years and, and Kelly's point, you know, and trying to pick one over the other, we just, we're not in a place to do that. You know, don't, there's no comparative data. And again, we don't have a lot of data to begin with. And so what was presented to the FDA, what was presented to ACIP in order to make those recommendations really was looking at individuals 60 years of age and older, and for the most part, getting one dose and then evaluating mostly in season one, who was getting RSV-associated lower respiratory tract disease, which again is what we're looking at. We're not looking at are you getting RSV or not. It's what is happening when you get infected and are you getting that lower respiratory tract infection. And Kelly gave some good examples of what those look like in terms of bronchiolitis, pneumonia. And then looking at if you had a lower respiratory tract Infection was it, did you need medical attention as a result of ending up in either the ER or urgent care? But we really don't have data going beyond that and looking at the hospitalization. So I think that's to come. So really just looking at that season one, so you get one dose and how did it fare in season one? Both of them are around about 80 to 85 percent in terms of vaccine efficacy. I think season two data, we had some interim data, it was a little bit too soon, looking at the combo of the seasons. Um, Arexby's trials, they did have a second dose given 12 months after the first dose, but really not seeing a, a huge change or benefit by giving that second dose, which sort of lends to the recommendations that we're talking about when we're saying right now, we're just gonna give one dose and give it as soon as, as you have vaccine available. And that brings me to another question that's pretty much related. So 
the recommendations are they say one dose and so I've been still bidding getting questions from people that they that ask is it going to be one dose annually or is that still kind of up in the air can you comment on that for us Lauren Sure. I, I don't think we know. I think right now it's just one dose. Okay. We need more data to say, does a second dose have value? And at what time point would we give that second dose? Again, just looking at some very early on data that was presented, that second dose given 12 months later didn't have really much benefit over just giving one dose. So I think it's a wait and watch and, and, and see how all of this unfolds. Okay. And related to that, let, you know, you mentioned that the season goes possibly up until May, but if you have a patient that comes in, say, you know, that late in the season or even later than that, and they have not received the RSV vaccine, would you still offer it to them if it happens to be off season or would you wait until it's during the next season? I vaccinate. You, you know, you're saying off-season, Jenny, but we don't even know what off-season is because it's been so, uh, you know, mm -hmm. kind of erratic. And COVID-19 really disrupted a lot of that. And so the CDC's recommendation, as well as I think ours, is vaccinate as soon as you have available. But if you've got someone later in the spring or even next summer, still vaccinate, just because we don't know, you know, when when the different peaks will occur. Okay, that's good clarification too. So Andrea, I know that you do a great job educating your patients. And so how in the world do you discuss vaccine efficacy with your patients? For example, how do you make them understand when a vaccine efficacy is 85%? How do you help them understand that so that when you're using that in clinical decision making, it's a useful statistic to them? So I, you know, I percentages are hard for patients. If you know we had a number needed to treat to reduce your risk for getting RSV, that would be a lovely number to to give to them because it just is. I think it's a little bit more accessible in terms of their their numerical processing skills. But I really just try and even take it away from numbers, right? If I can reduce your risk for getting something that's going to make you, you know, cough for you know four to six weeks and really disrupt your life, and potentially reduce your risk for hospitalization or for other bad outcomes, then uh, that, that's kind of the tactic that I'll use. And it really depends on the patient in front of me, how long I've known them, what I know is important to them in terms of their likelihood to accept a vaccine and, you know, talking about their ability to infect others, their ability to, you know, continue their normal daily activities, the things that they enjoy are generally ways that I can help people come alongside the need for vaccinations against flu, COVID, RS, and hopefully now RSV. Okay, that's really helpful. And Lauren, I want to step back to you for a second because with the shared decision-making approach, how can we help practitioners kind of have a rule of thumb as to which patients might benefit most from the vaccine? Sure, I think we have to go back to those high-risk groups. So we know we're, we're dealing with folks who are 60 years of age and older, and so whenever someone's in front of you, already be thinking, okay, RSV vaccine, and then that's when that conversation needs to happen around risk versus benefit. And so looking at those medical conditions that we know increase a person's risk for severe disease or ending up in the hospital or even dying from RSV, 
And so lung disease, you know, anything that we, we deal with when we're talking respiratory, and then cardiovascular disease um, was huge as well. And so really looking at patients with heart failure, coronary artery disease, and then even though immunocompromised patients weren't part of the, the studies that were shared um, with the FDA or ACIP, they are recommending that patients who are immunocompromised in that age group be vaccinated as well. And then going down the list, we've got patients with diabetes, kidney, liver disease, hematologic disorders. But, and then the last line that the um, ACIP gives us is really any other underlying conditions that you think might increase the patient's risk. And so, you know, that's where those conversations are important and, and really helping patients to evaluate their risk factors. And there may be situations, your frail patients, advanced age, living in long-term care facilities or nursing homes, again, that might um, lend itself to having a higher risk for severe outcomes. And so those are going to be the groups that you're really going to try to try to target in those conversations and, and really convincing them that, you know, this would be an important vaccine for them to receive. Perfect. That's really good clarification there. And I'm really glad that you brought up the immunocompromised patients because I think that is a, a group that there have been quite a few questions about. And I wondered, Reed, if you are managing a patient who's immunocompromised, how are you going to talk with them about getting this vaccine? Well, I, I think a lot of it, I've, I've been having some of the chat discussion about just the key aspect of trust with the physician-patient relationship. And so patients are seeing you already have some trust and just being able to say, look, you know, you've got a disease that has challenges. I often ask people things before I tell them, you know, what's your awareness of your increased risk to uh, bad problems? What do you know about the flu? What have you heard about RSV? Because uh, before I tell people things, I really just want to know where they're coming from because that'll help me spend my time wisely. And then I think just being able to say, you know, one of the most important things is keeping you keeping you from getting really sick and getting in the hospital because everything gets worse then. And it's just a, it's a, a typical conversation that especially in primary care, we have every day with patients about a lot of different things. So, you know, I think that's, kind of the approach that I would take. Okay, and that that's really helpful too. And I'm trying to move us along a little bit because I want to get to that co-administration piece, but we need to also talk about side effects. And so Lauren, I know that there were a handful of inflammatory neurologic events that occurred and some rare cases of new onset atrial fibrillation, but overall, what would you tell patients about the side effects of these vaccines? In terms of just overall tolerability across the general population that was studied, we aren't seeing a lot of serious adverse effects. It's what we're expecting from vaccines. So a sore arm, maybe mild, you know, muscle pains, swelling at the site, uh, maybe fever. You might see with an adjuvanted vaccine that could be a little bit higher. Again, we don't have comparative data between the two vaccines, but that's something, you know, when we see adjuvanted vaccines, we might expect that um, due to that reactogenicity profile of adjuvanted vaccines. With respect to serious adverse effects, um, they're pretty mild and pretty rare. And so we're only looking at about a handful of patients in those trials, about 4% across the board for both. But you brought up inflammatory neurologic events. And Kelly, I've heard you talk about these too, so feel free to chime in when, when we're dealing with these. But there are two kind of unique and unexpected adverse events with these vaccines, AFib and inflammatory neurologic events. And so with 
atrial fibrillation in particular, each manufacturer had reported 10 events um, in their intervention group and four in the control or placebo groups. These were 30 days after vaccination. So again, not enough to, to really pause on these vaccines, but it was just something that was noted in these trials. And the same thing with inflammatory neurologic events or Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBS. There were some cases reported six cases across both studies that looked at this. So while concerning, it is very rare. It's just something we're going to continue to watch and monitor as we enter, you know, kind of our first round of vaccines in RSV season. Okay, that's great clarification. And I want to step back for a second. We're just getting a ton of audience questions and a really good one just came up and it talks about targeted patients basically. So the question is, should grandparents get the RSV vaccine just like is recommended for pertussis? So if a grandparent gets the RSV vaccine, will it lower the risk of infecting a new grandchild? What do you think about that? Any of the panelists who might want to jump in? or Kelly or Lauren, do you have a specific recommendation related to that? I was going to say, in theory, we hope that would be the case and, and that we're decreasing shedding and, and spread of the, the virus, but I don't know that we know enough yet. And we're looking at protestants in particular. I think there was enough data to show by vaccinating others around a young infant who's, who's too young to be vaccinated that we are providing that protective effect. I think with RSV, I think that all still remains to be determined, but I'll defer to others um, if there's data out there I'm not aware of. I wouldn't say that there is data, but I would say that that would be a discussion point that I might consider, including we don't know the answer to this question. Theoretically, this could help reduce the risk for other people in your vicinity, including your grandkids becoming ill. That's really good wording, Andrea. I really like that. Theoret theoretically can help, and I think that's, that's really helpful wording. Okay, and I do want to jump in and talk about cost before we can move on. And so I just wanna make sure that we have this correct. Kelly, it appears that I've been reading that Medicare Part D is going to cover these vaccines. Do we know anything about Part B? And how will all of this coverage affect patients who are between um, 60 and 64 or where they can get these vaccines? So that is correct that all new vaccines that are covered under Medicare are covered under Medicare Part D. That's been put in, that's the um, the way the law works. So they wouldn't be, the only vaccines that are under B are, are the ones that are already be, already there, your flu, your influenza, your influenza and your pneumococcal, and then some vaccines for patients on dialysis. But so it would be Part D, which means that for our family practitioners here on, on the call, it, it's sometimes harder to, to offer those vaccines for their Medicare patients in their offices because of how the, the payment is done through, through the Medicare Part D. But it would be at no copay, but it's, they're not going to be covered under Part B. For commercial payer for that 60 to 64, so under the new ACA Act, right, all vaccines have to be covered at, at no at no copay. So they would be covered for your commercial patients as well for that 60 to 64. The the question really becomes what's going to happen for that that patient that's uninsured and doesn't have um, the ability to pay pay for the vaccine. It 
will potentially be covered under Vaccines for Adults program, but not all states have that. Um, we don't have a national vaccine for adults program, so it is um, going to be difficult for, for patients to, to get access to this, but mostly it's going to be in a pharmacy for those Medicare Part D patients and patients who have, have commercial insurance. Okay, so that's mostly good news, but Stephen, you know, you and I were back and forth a little bit about the Part B coverage, so how will that affect what you do and the conversations you might have in the clinic? Yeah, sort of closer this vaccine, the same conversations that I have about getting Shingrix or getting their tetanus shots um, for especially for patients in Medicare. So we we'll probably won't have these in stock in our clinic, as it's been mentioned, just because of the cost of upkeep and then the unintended billing that may go uh, be passed on to the patients when they can get it covered at a commercial pharmacy. So just continuing to have these conversations, um, you know, trying to direct instructions. Uh, if we have the patient wishes to get it, just give them the available resources, locations. We're fortunate in our clinic, we have a pharmacy right across the hall from our clinic where they have these uh, vaccines and you can get them as they're leaving the visit. So that hopefully reduces some of the barrier that we'll see. I think the big thing though is that we wish this was something that we could give in the clinic, wish that we could get uh, a clear uh, sort of a billing and reimbursement pathways to get these vaccines covered, regardless of insurance status. But hopefully we can reduce some of these barriers so patients will get them. Okay. Well, I need to move on. I can't believe we're almost out of time here. And we have just had a million questions about co-administration. And so Lauren, can patients get the flu, COVID-19 and RSC vaccines all at the same time at the same visit? The answer is yes. When we follow the CDC and ACIP guidance, um, they are saying that yes, you can vaccinate with all three. And you might see patients in, in clinic or in the pharmacies looking to get them. But the advice is if you are giving multiple vaccines, give them in different limbs. If you have to give them in the same limb, make sure you are separating them by an inch apart. Those vaccines that tend to be more reactogenic, so something that might be higher dose or adjuvanted, we might see more local reactions um, or more reactogenicity with those particular vaccines. So it's just something to keep in mind based on what you stock in the pharmacies or in your clinics and what you're counseling patients to expect. Okay, and another great question we got was if if you have a patient who needs the flu vaccine and also the RSV vaccine, would you avoid giving them both the adjuvanted brands or forms of that vaccine, or do you think it matters, or we do we do we even know? We don't know, and we don't have that guidance yet, and so I don't want to give one an answer one way or the other. I don't know if the clinicians on here have experience with that and what they would do, but we really don't know for sure when giving two different adjuvants, if that's going to be a problem or not. Just to point out, um, the adjuvanted RSV vaccine is the same adjuvant that's in the, the Shingrix vaccine. So, you know, whether that matters or not, we don't know. But it's just an interesting fact. I could think about the adjuvant used. Mm -hmm. And I think it was about half as much as in the Shingrix. I, I read that somewhere, if that is also accurate. accurate. So it's a little bit less adjuvant. And I guess the one big question that I'm, you know, I'm even talking to my own parents who qualify for all three of these, and they they are kind of resistant. They don't want to go in and get them all three at once. So what if you have other patients that come in? And I guess this could be a question for, hey, Andrea, what if you want, if a patient just wants one or two of these, which one or two are you going to recommend? And then how do you keep track of them to come back for the third one if they are willing? Well, I, my rank order is going to be 
get your COVID vaccine, then your flu vaccine, then your RSV vaccine, if everybody, if, if people want to do this one or two at a time. And in terms of keeping track of them to come back in, um, you know, I can certainly set reminders up, certainly let them know that they can come in. For, with respect to RSV, since our office won't be offering it, I've confirmed that as of today, I will have a prescription that's set out there to the pharmacy if they are able to obtain it there. And I'm hoping my pharmacy colleagues will do a good job of tracking my patients down and reminding them to come and get that vaccine too. <laughs> Does anyone have any other comments about the the combination vaccine? I actually saw some experts that recommended, you know, just giving two at once. And I'm like, no, if you have them there and they're willing to get all three, is there any reason why you wouldn't give all three at one time while you have them captive? Do Reed or Stephen, do you have any comments on that as far as if you have a patient who is willing to get all three, is that okay? Yes. Yes, and that's yeah, definitely absolutely. preferred, is it yeah. not? Yes. <laughs> we yeah. give babies like five, six vaccines at a time. I don't yeah. know why all of these adults are so freaked out. They bring their children and grandchildren in and they let them their little legs get punctured and yet they can't get their own vaccines. It just makes me crazy. Yeah, they give you like 12 at once in the military and you just say thank you and move on. <laughs> that is a really good point about kids, for sure. <laughs> Wow, this has been a fantastic discussion and some really interesting topics. We hope you enjoyed and gained practical insights from listening into this discussion. Now that you've listened, pharmacists, physicians, and nurses can receive CE credit. Just log into your pharmacist letter or prescriber's letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. You'll also be able to access and print out additional materials on this topic like charts and other quick reference tools from the Pharmacist Letter and Prescriber's Letter websites. If you're not yet a Pharmacist Letter or Prescriber's Letter subscriber, find out more about our product offerings at trchealthcare.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe, rate, and review this show in your favorite podcast app. It helps spread the word about our show and is a great way for you to let us know how we're doing. You can also reach out to provide feedback or make suggestions by emailing us at contactus at trchealthcare.com. Thanks for listening to Medication Talk.